Welcome to Murder Bucket, a true crime podcast where I talk about everything from murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and also weird stuff. If you never want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be helpful if you rated and left me a review. This spreads the word about Murder Bucket. Let's see what we're going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, Murder Bucket family. Welcome back to another Tuesday. We have been gone for just a week. We missed last week's episode because I did not feel that it was appropriate to talk about true crime when 19 children and two teachers were killed in Uvalda, Texas. Didn't think it was fair. I felt that the silence of not having an episode was better to pay respect to them. I know that a lot of people on social media say that thoughts and prayers don't do anything. Um, I still prayed for those family members. I still prayed for those children that still have to go to school every day. I pray for those friends that have lost a classmate. Um, I can't imagine going through something like that. I can't imagine losing a child or losing a spouse or anything like that. I just, I don't, I don't ever want to have to deal with that. And I don't wish that on anybody. I don't want to get into a political conversation about this, but I do believe that mental health is a major aspect in a lot of these shootings. And I believe that when somebody calls the police department and says that they're going to do something, I think that they need to be held accountable for that and they need to take those threats seriously because a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot of, some of the shootings that have happened in the last few years, that has been an issue. The The main suspect, the person that has done the shooting, has either told somebody they were going to do something, has called the police station told and told somebody they were going to do something or they've posted it on social media and nobody has followed up or they didn't take the threat seriously. Not going to talk any any more about that side of things. I hope that the families and the friends and everybody in the surrounding area is able to work through this horrible time Um, I did post on all of my social media accounts a link that is a, that goes straight to a verified GoFundMe page that has been set up for every single victim. It's been set up for the school. It has been set up for the town. So those are verified. If you do wish to donate money, I can tell you that is exactly where it's going to go. It's going to go to those families. I did see recently, though, on social media and in the news that an anonymous donor has donated all the money to pay 100% all the funeral costs for every single victim, which is absolutely incredible. Whoever you are, if you potentially listen to this podcast, thank you. I know that 
suddenly losing a family member is traumatic and the cost of a funeral when you're not expecting it is very overwhelming. And I appreciate what you do. I appreciate that you did that. I did see another story and I didn't 100% verify it. So please correct me if I'm wrong. I did see another story where a company has taken the time to decorate. I don't know if you would say decorate, but paint each casket for every single victim. Paint them essentially like any of the the children's hobbies or something that they enjoyed um, so that they're just not plain wooden caskets or or plain black or plain white or anything like that. And I hope that the article that I saw was real and I hope that this person is actually doing that. Again, I didn't verify if that information was true. So if it's not, please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not going to go into too much detail of the things that I did the last two weeks because I just don't feel that they're relevant right now. Um, Only thing that I really did was played softball. Some friends helped my husband and I clean up our backyard. Um, Went over to a friend's house for Memorial Day and that's about it. So we are going to just go ahead and get into tonight's episode. We are talking about the fast food killer. On February 16th, 1997, Sarah Jackson and Steve Hampton were discovered laying face down on the floor inside the walk-in cooler of a Captain D's restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee. Sarah was shot four times in the head and once in the back. Two of those shots to the head were superficial. Steve was shot twice in the head and once in the back. They were both shot with a 32 caliber revolver. During the discovery of the two victims, officers noted that $7,145 had been taken during the murder. The night before the murders, Michael Buttersworth and Jason Carter were working the late shift. They both claimed that a man came in right before closing and inquired about a job application. This man told them he worked for Shoney's down the street. The man then asked if anyone would be at the restaurant on Sunday morning. He was informed that Steve would be there, but that he would probably be very busy until after lunch. He then left in a dark-colored car. Steve's driver's license, credit cards, movie video rental card, insurance card, birth certificate, and his children's identification cards were found on the ground 11 and a half miles from the crime scene. A fingerprint was found on his movie video rental card. Back at the restaurant, several shoe prints were photographed on the floor near the safe inside the restaurant. Michael, Jason, and James Cassidy assisted with preparing a sketch of the man they saw the evening before. They stated that his hair was pulled straight back into a ponytail. Several witnesses who drove by that morning state that they saw the suspect at the restaurant. Here are their accounts of what they saw. Jerry Marlin states that he drove by the restaurant around 8.45 a.m. He saw a blue Ford station wagon parked at a funny angle near the back of the building. The vehicle had damage to the front left end and the left rear quarter panel. Debbie Hines states that she drove by the restaurant at 8.50 a.m. on her way to church. She saw a man, 
Steve Hampton, standing inside the doorway talking to a man that was standing outside. The man outside had white paper in his hands. She described the man standing outside as having dark hair, being around six foot three and roughly 200 pounds. Mark Farmer states that he drove by the restaurant around 9.30 a.m. on his way to breakfast. He noticed a small to medium-sized car parked in a weird way in the parking lot. He states he saw a man walking away from the restaurant toward the car in a hurried manner and stopping at the passenger side door. The man then got in the passenger side of the car. He was tall with a muscular build and a large neck. He had dark eyes with slicked back hair, wearing a white t-shirt and tennis shoes. On March 23rd of 1997, Ronald Santiago, Andrea Brown, Robert Sewell, and Jose Ramirez Gonzalez had just completed their night shift at the McDonald's restaurant located in Davidson County, Tennessee, when a man forced his way in, ordered everyone in the office, and demanded money. Ronald, who was the manager, handed over the contents of the safe. He placed the money in the bag that the man had with him. They were all then directed to lie on the floor of the storage area. The man then shot Ronald, Andrea, and Robert twice in the head. When he attempted to shoot Jose, the gun malfunctioned. The two men then struggled, and he drew a knife and stabbed Jose repeatedly. Jose then fell to the floor, and the man stabbed and kicked him even more while he was down. The attack on Jose only stopped after he began to play dead. As soon as the man left, Jose was able to get to a telephone and call for help. Dorothy Carter, the dispatcher who answered the 911 call, stated that when she answered the phone, all she could hear were groans and mumbling. She decided to dispatch police and ambulance to the restaurant despite being unable to communicate with whoever had called. When officers arrived, they found six Remington 25 caliber automatic cartridges. When officers arrived, they found six Remington 25 caliber automatic cartridge casings inside the restaurant, but no fingerprints, shoe prints, or any other physical evidence. Ronald and Robert died at the restaurant. Andrea died at the hospital, but Jose lived. Jose was able to work with a police sketch artist to help develop a composite drawing of the suspect. He described the man as being in his late 20s, tall, thin, with long hair, and possibly of Hispanic descent. For several months, Jose viewed more than 300 photographs of potential suspects. On the night of April 23, 1997, Angela Holmes and Michelle Mace were working at a Baskin-Robbins in Clarksville, Tennessee. They closed the store at 10 p.m. At around 10.10 p.m., Craig Mace arrived at the store to pick up his sister, Michelle. When he got there, he noticed that Angela's car was still in the parking lot and the lights were still on inside. He got out of his car and walked up to the door of the restaurant and found the door to be unlocked. When he entered, there was no one inside. He called 911. Officers arrived shortly after and did a search of the store. They found the cash register was empty and a safe in the office was also empty. Both Angela's and Michelle's purses were found, but no money had been removed. The freezer door was left open and a mop and bucket had been left in the dining room. 
LaVonda Zimmerman told police that she visited with the women that evening at the store from 9.20 until 10 p.m., and at one point, a man in his late 20s entered the store and became obnoxious and very loud about the prices before leaving. When she left the store, she noticed a red car entering the parking lot. The next morning, Angela and Michelle's bodies were found at the Dunbar Cave State Natural Area in Montgomery County, Tennessee. Both women suffered deep stab wounds to their necks as well as stab wounds, cuts, and abrasions to other parts of their bodies. Several witnesses state that they saw a vehicle either at the restaurant or at Dunbar Cave. Here are the accounts of what they saw. Jerry Perdue, a friend of Michelle's, stated that he saw a man in a small red car in the parking lot shortly after 10 p.m. on the evening of the 23rd. Jay Smith and Shannon Reeves state that they saw a car near Dunbar Cave around 10.30. They were at the home of Holly Schmidt, Jay's girlfriend, who lived across the street from the entrance to the parking lot. Jay stated that he thought it was odd that the car was there, but not sitting in a parking space. George Hertenstein states that while he was on his way to work at 9.59 p.m., he saw a car driving slowly on Rossview Road near the restaurant. When he attempted to pass the slow car, they abruptly turned onto a road that was right after the entrance to the restaurant. So here's the question. Who killed and kidnapped these people? Let's find out. Paul Dennis Reed Jr. was listed as a suspect on June 12, 1997, after he was arrested in Chatham County for attempting to kidnap the manager of a Shoney's restaurant. The police obtained his fingerprints and were able to match them to the fingerprints found on Steve Hampton's movie video rental cart. Remember the shoe print that was found at Captain D's? Even though police were unable to find the matching tread designed from Paul's shoes at home, the length of the print was consistent with the length of all of Paul's shoes. Jose Gonzalez from the McDonald's murder had viewed more than 300 photos of potential suspects and was able to identify Paul four months after the shooting. George Hertenstein contacted police in June of 1997 after he saw a photo of Paul's vehicle on the news. He told police that his car was in fact the car he saw on the evening of the murders. Gas station receipts revealed that Paul purchased gas at a Texaco in Clarksville at 9.45, just one mile from the restaurant. A handwriting expert confirmed that the signature on the receipt was Paul's. An identical receipt was found in his wallet. So let's fast forward to the trials. During the Captain D's trial, both Michael Buttersworth and Jason Carter positively identified Paul Reed Jr. as the man that came into the restaurant the night before the murders. In June of 1997, Michael and Jason were brought into the police station and shown a lineup of six people, one including Paul. While Michael was unable to make a positive identification, Jason did. When the news report came out of Paul being arrested for attempted kidnapping of the Shoney's manager, Michael contacted the police and informed them that this was the man that came in that evening. Michael then testified that he was sure of his identification 
after he had the opportunity to hear Paul's voice, see the way his lips moved when he talked, and see his walk during the news report. Jerry Marlin, the witness who saw the blue Ford station wagon parked at a funny angle, testified that Paul's car, as pictured in the photographs of the insurance company, was similar to the car that he saw in the parking lot that morning. Another witness, Mark Farmer, testified that when he saw Paul's arrest in the news report in June, he called to inform police that that was the man he saw at the restaurant that morning. Jeffrey Potter, a former co-worker of Paul's at Shoney's, testified that Paul told him he was dissatisfied with his job and thought he could make more money committing a robbery. Another co-worker, Danny Tackett, testified that Paul was scheduled to work on February 16th, but didn't show up. He also stated that he was asked by Paul to purchase a handgun for him. Danny then went on to state that he and Paul discussed robbing fast food restaurants, but assumed the discussions were simply hypothetical and didn't believe Paul was serious. It was mentioned during the trial that Paul was having financial difficulties during this time and that after the murders took place, he was seen by fellow co-workers to have a stack of $100 to $200, as well as a new red car. When the police looked into this, they discovered that Paul had paid a $20,000 down payment on a new Ford car on February 18th and then paid the remaining balance of $3,127 on February 20th. When police questioned the salesman, he stated that he asked Paul where he got the large amount of cash in such a short time, to which Paul responded, Well, I've been very good at saving. My dad is going to be helping me. During the first week of March, Paul then went to a local fitness center and spoke with Bernie Millingsley regarding investing in the stock market. He told Bernie that he had about $3,000 to invest. After the murders, Robert Bolin sold Paul two 25 caliber automatic pistols. Paul then told Robert that he had a 32 caliber revolver but didn't like the way that it shot. He wanted something that had a clip that held more shells. When Paul was arrested in June of 1997, the police seized four one-gallon jugs full of coins from his home. The jug contained a little over $1,000. Paul's defense team tried to win over the jury by presenting testimony from TBI agent Samara Zavaro. She stated that the DNA examination of the cigarette butts found at the restaurant did not match the DNA profiles of Paul, Sarah, or Steve. This obviously did not help them win their argument. Paul was then convicted on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of aggravated robbery. His conviction for this crime was upheld in the Court of Criminal Appeals of Tennessee at Nashville on March 13, 2001. During the McDonald's trial, Detective Mike Rowland stated that while there was no physical evidence linking Paul to the crime, the six 25 caliber cartridge casings that were found had been tested and matched the bullet casings that were recovered from the murder victims. Testimony during the trial established that prior to the crimes, Paul had moved from Texas to Nashville to pursue a career in country music. Clearly, 
that didn't work out and he wanted to just go into a life of crime. Michelle Roberts, the manager at Shoney's, stated that Paul worked there until two weeks before the shooting took place. The next time she saw him was several months later when he came to her door. During this trial, they also talked about how Robert Boland sold Paul two 25 caliber handguns. One was nickel-plated with black-handled grips, and the other was nickel-plated with pink-handled grips. Robert also gave him ammunition in a green and yellow box. Agent Tommy Heflin of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations testified that the bullets recovered from the murder victims were Remington brand. He confirmed that Remington ammunition was packaged in a green and yellow box. Paul was convicted on three counts of premeditated murder, three counts of felony murder, one count of attempted murder, and one count of aggravated robbery. His conviction for this crime was upheld in the Supreme Court of Tennessee at Nashville on October 6, 2006. During the Baskin-Robbins trial, Lavanda Zimmerman testified that she did in fact visit the victims that evening, but she did not tell police about the car that she saw when she was interviewed in May of 1997. She brought up the car in later interviews. George Hertzenstein was cross-examined by the prosecution and the defense regarding the vehicle he saw that evening. He admitted that he contacted police in June after he saw pictures of Paul's car on the news. He also stated that he told a private investigator that the car he had seen had two doors while Paul's car had four. Remember TBI agent Samara Zavaro? Well, during this trial, she testified that a DNA sample taken from blood found on Paul's left tennis shoe was consistent with the DNA profile of Angela Holmes. A DNA sample that was taken from a small bloodstain found on the right shoe was consistent with a mixture of two or more donors, neither of them being Angela Holmes or Michelle Mace. Megan Clement, an associate director of LabCorp, also testified that the DNA sample found on Paul's left tennis shoe was consistent with the DNA profile of Angela Holmes. DNA sample that was taken from a small blood stain found on the right shoe was consistent with a mixture of two or more donors. She also said that neither of them being Angela Holmes or Michelle Mace. Linda Littlejohn, a fiber comparison specialist, testified that the fibers found on Angela Holmes' clothing were consistent with samples that were taken from Paul's back seat and floor mats. Several other fibers found on Michelle Mace's clothing and shoes were consistent with fibers found from Paul's back seat, carpet, and the edge of the back seat. She stated that it is very rare to find 11 fibers that match one source. Paul was convicted on two counts of premeditated first-degree murder, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, and one count of aggravated robbery. His conviction for this crime was upheld in the Supreme Court of Tennessee at Nashville on May 24, 2005. All in all, Paul was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder, three counts of aggravated robbery, three counts of premeditated murder, three counts of felony murder, one count of attempted murder, 
two counts of premeditated first-degree murder, and two counts of aggravated kidnapping. Paul received seven death sentences for his convictions. His execution had been stayed several times since then, including an instance in 2003, just hours before the scheduled execution. Paul eventually waived his right to an appeal. Several members of his family, along with anti-death penalty activists, claimed that he was mentally handicapped and unable to make such a decision and filed multiple motions to stay his execution. However, the Tennessee Supreme Court has upheld all of Paul's sentences. Paul's case has received national attention among anti-death penalty activists. His latest execution date was scheduled for January 3, 2008, but was stayed on December 26, 2007 by District Judge Todd Campbell, pending an investigation into the constitutionality of Tennessee's lethal injection methods. The stay was part of a larger investigation and not directly related to his case. On April 16, 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an opinion in a Kentucky case upholding the legality of execution by lethal injection. The state of Tennessee immediately began appealing stays of execution to resume death penalty cases, including Paul's. As a result of Paul's murder spree, several fast food restaurants in the Nashville area began closing earlier and police patrols around such establishments became more frequent. The city of Mount Juliet, Tennessee, a Nashville suburb, began a program requiring all fast food employees to carry a decal on the rear window of their automobiles so police could identify any out-of-place cars in late-night patrols. Paul Dennis Reed Jr. died at Nashville General Hospital at Mayhary on November 1, 2013. The cause of death was from complications due to pneumonia, heart failure, and upper respiratory issues. He had been in the hospital for about two weeks. And that concludes tonight's episode about the fast food killer. Please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Drink Drunk Dead podcast. In the show notes tonight, I will be putting a link to all of those GoFundMes that are verified for all of the Ovalda, Texas victims, the families, the school, and the surrounding area. If you would like to donate, please consider doing that. Again, these are verified with the city of Ovalda and with GoFundMe. So it is going to go directly to those families, to the city of Uvalda and the school. Next week, we are continuing in our restaurant theme. Not going to give anything away. I'm going to keep you in suspense. But remember, next week is the first Tuesday of the month. So at the end of the episode, we will have our True Crime News Corner. Have a wonderful evening, and we will see you next week. Obsessed with UFOs and extraterrestrials? Convinced there's a chupacabra in your backyard? Is your doppelganger ruining your life? Do you love all things haunting-related? If you answered yes to any... Or none of these... Then these are the mostly sensical, slightly drunken ramblings for you? 
question mark? I'm Emily. And I'm Joel. And we're the hosts of Drink Drunk Dead. Join us, our two cats, Emma and Otto, and our half ghost, every week as we have a few drinks, discuss all things paranormal, and, and raise, raise a, a toast, toast to, to our, our ghosts. ghosts. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.